Good morning. I want to thank the elders again for giving me yet another opportunity to stand before you and to try to bring a portion of God's word to us that we can all learn from. As was mentioned in the announcements, and I think everybody's aware, Brother Randy is again away preaching in a gospel meeting that he's going to be at all week. Um, I think as normal, we all want to keep him in our prayers, pray that God uses him in the way that he needs to be used, that he can share the gospel with others and help bring them closer to Christ. There's another thing I want to mention, too, about the congregation here at Pippin, something that's really been a great encouragement to me. A couple months ago, the elders asked me if I would help try to line up some speakers to, to preach sermons, to handle our Bible classes for us for a few weeks while Brother Randy was going to be gone, whether it's at vacation, whether he's on gospel meetings. For some reason, he wasn't going to be here with us. I think there was about three to four weeks that we had to get men to step forward to cover the position while Brother Randy was gone. Not one time did I have to go back to somebody and say, I can't find anybody else. I need you to do it again. We had enough men step forward in this congregation to bring sermons, to fill in in Bible classes, to do the invitation on Wednesday night. Not one time did I have to go back to somebody and say, I need you to do it again. That's extremely encouraging. There's congregations four and five times the size of us that can't do that. And I think that's, that speaks very highly of the men of this congregation. I wanted to thank you for that. You know, sometimes I, it seems that we tend to be hesitant to want to learn about other religions, to look at what other denominations believe and why they believe what they do. I don't know if it's because we think that we're going to be sympathetic to them if we learn what they believe, if we fear that somehow we're going to assimilate with them or try to embrace their teachings if we know what they believe and why. You know, I think there's a lot to be said about studying another religious group and wanting to know why they believe what they do. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago in the invitation I did on Wednesday night, our teenage class has recently started going through a small series where we're going to start looking at different denominations around the world not just within the United States, even other religions, what we think of. We're trying to look at what they believe, why they believe what they do, and then compare that back to the Bible to see if we can find what's wrong with what they believe and maybe even what's right with what they believe. There's a lot of reasons why we should be doing this. Obviously, it's going to help us if we're ever trying to teach somebody what the Bible truly says. If you know what they believe first, you're going to have an easier conversation with them. But I think one of the biggest reasons... And there's a quote, it's, it's been quoted several times by many people, but the best version I like of it is by George, a man named George Santayana. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. No, not, the world didn't start with the denominations existing with other religions. Somehow they started going down a path that led them to where they're at today. If we don't know what that path was that they went down that got them where they are, how do we know if we're not slowly beginning to go down that same path? If we know their history, we can start recognizing things that maybe we might be doing that should throw up a red flag that says, hey, maybe we need to stay, take a step back right now. Other people have done this, and this is what it resulted in. So I want us to look at, beginning this morning, at a group that a lot of times seems to almost live in like a storybook world in our minds, that almost like a, a fictitious group that they're kind of mysterious to us. And if you've looked at the bulletin so far this morning, you'll see that I'm wanting to talk about the Amish, something that it's a group of people that not many people really truly know a whole lot about them. When you think of the Amish, 
some of the first things that come to mind is you think of separation. You think of people that are very hard workers. We may even think of the odd clothing that they may wear. People that are very good at their crafts, very good at working with their hands. But I'm, I want us to look at, for a little while, where did they come from? How did they get to where they're at today? Now, I propose there's a whole lot that we can learn from the Amish. There's a lot that they're doing that is not correct according to the Scripture. But I would propose there's a lot that they're doing that is right according to the Scripture, and they do it very well that we could learn from ourselves. A topic like the Amish, I believe, it could span up to probably 10 to 12 sermons. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is try to, to squeeze it into two sermons, this morning and this evening. And so this evening will actually be a continuation of this morning's sermon. So I encourage everybody to be back this evening so that we can hear the conclusion of the message I'm wanting to present. This morning, I want us to look very briefly at the history of the Amish, kind of what caused them to form, where they came from. And then I want us to look at kind of a typical Amish community. What are their basic belief systems? And start comparing those beliefs to the Bible. How well does it compare to what the Scripture says? This evening, then, I want us to continue looking at a few of those things, comparing it to the Bible, but I want us to focus a little bit more on what they do that is right according to the Bible, what they're very, very good at, and what we can maybe pull away from that to apply to our lives to make us better Christians. Now, I will say at this point that as I go through the sermon, I'm going to use words such as church and Christian, and I may use them very loosely because I'm going to use them in the way at times that the Amish uses them. But I will do my best to make sure I point out the difference between the Amish church and the Lord's church and what they call Christian and what the Scripture calls Christian. So I will do my best to point that out, but please keep that in mind. The history of the Amish spans a little over 500 years. I'm going to try to squeeze 500 years of history into less than 10 minutes. There's no way possible I'm going to hit everything. There's going to be a lot of stuff I'm going to skim over, but I want to hit the high points, and I want to go through this for a reason. Pay attention to some of the things that's happened to them in their history, and I think that will help us to better understand where a lot of their beliefs have come from. I think everybody has, has more than likely heard of Martin Luther. Now, everybody studied about Martin Luther in school, how he started the movement of basically revolting against the, against the Catholic Church. Before the year 1517, the Catholic Church and the state government were very, very united. They were basically one and the same even to the point that opposition to the Catholic Church was considered a crime against the state, and it was punishable by imprisonment, whatever punishment they may bestow upon you. Martin Luther basically set in motion what history likes to refer to as the Protestant Reformation, that it was removing the church away from the state. You know, as, as the church began to lose power, and I say the church, the Catholic Church began to lose power over the state, they began to gain power more over the smaller, the local governments. And because of that, there was one key doctrine that had to be taught by the Catholic Church that people had to believe in in order for the church, the Catholic Church, to maintain power over the citizens in a certain area, to do things such as demanding tithes from their citizens. That was they had to teach the doctrine of infant baptism. With infant baptism... A child would become a member of the Catholic Church upon birth, whether they had any desire to be a member of that church or not, whether they had any intentions of staying dedicated to the church. No matter what the interest was, they were now a part of that church, which means the Catholic Church had control over them even from a government standpoint. Well, part of this 
Protestant Reformation that we know of, you had groups starting to break away from the Catholic Church. In a small Swiss town of Zurich, there was a small group at that time that they strongly, strongly opposed infant baptism. They would point at verses in the Bible such as 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 that said, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. They understood that godly sorrow cannot be had by an infant. That is something that a conscientious adult has to have that sorrow. They have to make that decision. And so infants couldn't meet the prerequisite to baptism. And so rightly so, this group opposed infant baptism. Well, on January the 21st in 1525, this group met together and they baptized each other as adults. They felt that their baptism as an infant did not mean anything, that it was void, and so in order to be right with the Bible, they had to make that decision that they wanted to be a member of the Lord's church, and so they baptized one another. People around them saw this, and they started referring, them, referring to them as Anabaptist. Anabaptist is a Latin is a transliteration of a Latin word, antibaptismus, which means second baptism. And so if you've ever heard the term Anabaptist in your study in history and school or whatever, that's where that came from. Over the next several decades, though, as you can imagine, by them rejecting this infant baptism, that caused a lot, a lot of problems between them and their local governments because their local governments was still being controlled by the Catholic Church. They suffered a lot of persecution because of this. This group was constantly on the run. They were trying to stay away from a lot of people in society. If they were ever caught, they were beaten, put in prison. Some of them even burned at a stake, even beheaded at times. So if this group ever wanted to meet and worship, they had to meet in caves. They had to meet in secret. Everything that they did, was tried to, they tried to keep it out of the limelight of society. Their neighbors around them at times, some of them didn't always agree with the way that, that the Anabaptists were being treated. And so they started being sympathetic to them. They had neighbors that would allow them to come and work on their farms as farmhands. They would give them food. They would give them houses to live in. And because of that, you started having these groups that started being more friendly with their, with their neighbors that people they considered to be outside their church. Well, part of the doctrines that was being taught by this group is they wanted separation from the world. They didn't want to assimilate with people around them. They had leaders that stepped up within their movement. One of the initial leaders that really stepped up, he was, he was a Catholic priest that broke from, from his Catholic beliefs, that broke from the Catholic Church. He joined this Anabaptist movement by the name of Minno Simmons. Now, he became such an influential leader within this Anabaptist movement that a lot of people started referring him to him more or less as the unofficial leader of the movement. And by the year 1545, people were actually referring to this group. They were linking his name to the Anabaptist, Anabaptist movement to the point they started referring to him as Mennonites. And that's exactly where we have what we think of Mennonites today. That's where that came from. And so a lot of these teachings that they had of wanting to have separation from the world, of not wanting to be around the people that were persecuting them, there was a lot of issues that started when they, when they started making close friendships with their neighbors around them, people that were not part of their group. Well, there started to be more or less a, a movement within this Mennonite group to take them back to what they felt that their core beliefs were. There started to be disagreements and arguments within the Mennonite church. Within that movement, there was another man who, who arose as more or less the influential leader within this reforming group. His name was Jacob Amon. 
Now, Jacob Almond was an extremely outspoken individual, very argumentative at times, but was a very, very prominent leader, a very well-spoken person. He, did, he had so many disagreements with the leaders in the Mennonite church that it actually caused a split within their church. The individuals that wanted to follow the teachings of Jacob Almond to get them back to their core, what they felt their core beliefs were, of separation from the world, of trying to stay away from the use of different kinds of technology, the world started referring to them as being Amish, or which eventually got shortened into Amish. So that's where the Amish come from that we see today. A lot of times we want to think of Mennonites and Amish as being very closely related in terms of their religious beliefs. But if you ask Mennonites or Amish, they don't feel that they're related at all, that they hold two completely different belief systems. The Amish feel that they are much more conservative, while Mennonites tend to be much more liberal in their thinkings. Over the centuries that followed, there tended to be a lot more divisions within the Amish church that you'll see slight variations when you go from congregation to congregation or from district to district. A lot of this is because there is no central governing body over their, over their church. Every one of their congregations are autonomous. And if you understand their history, you can understand why. With the persecution that they were suffering, you almost couldn't have a global body that was watching over them. The world wouldn't allow that to exist. And so you're going to see slight variations when you go from district to district with them. Most of the time in the United States today, most of your Amish groups, they're found in either Ohio, northern Indiana. There's a large population that exists in Pennsylvania. A census taken in 2010 shows that there's a little over 2,000 Amish living in Tennessee today. Now, that's not including Mennonite groups like we would think of possibly Muddy Pond up around the Monterey area. That is specifically Amish. Actually, one of the largest Amish communities in the entire southern United States actually exists in Etheridge, Tennessee here basically in our own backyard. So we ask, okay, Jonathan, why did you just tell us all that? What was the point of knowing all that? We're going to get to that in the lesson. There's some certain things I want to pinpoint, and in order to understand really where, what they believe and how it compares to the Bible, you almost have to know where they came from, what caused them to have their belief system. When someone thinks of an Amish person today, thinks of an Amish community, what you're likely thinking of in your mind is what's called an old order Amish. These are the Amish that they're very, they're very easily recognized based on the clothing that they wear by their modes of transportation. Now, like I said, there are several variations if you go from community to community. But what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on just that group and more or less use it as kind of an overview of what the Amish in general believe. But keeping in mind, there are going to be slight variations in their belief. But what I want to look at going from here on in the sermon and continuing tonight is what do they believe? How does that compare to the Bible? What can we learn from it that they're doing wrong to make sure that we don't go down that same path? But what are they doing right that we can learn from? I think one of the first things that we'll notice when we think of an Amish community or of an Amish individual is likely the clothing that they wear. The dress seems very odd to us. It's something that a lot of us probably don't understand. The men wear very plain clothing, normally are black trousers at all times, wear suspenders. I think everybody's probably aware of or at least recognize the wide-brimmed hats that they tend to wear. The women will wear very dark, very plain dresses. Traditionally, they either tend to be black or very dark in color. A lot of times will wear aprons with it. But I think one of the most distinguishing things that you'll recognize if we see a family out in town that you pinpoint that, hey, that's either an Amish or a Mennonite family, 
is the head coverings that the women wear. That's normally a telltale sign that, that, that that's who that family is. They will actually point to Scripture for reasons that they, that they wear those. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, it says, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if your head had been shaved. They'll use that verse in conjunction with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that says, Pray without ceasing. And so in their mind, if, you are to have, if the women are to have their head covered while they're praying and you're to pray without ceasing, that means your head is to be covered at all times. That's where that comes from. And now I will say as well, um, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, some of the scriptures that I'm going to point to that they get their beliefs from, not necessarily showing my support for their beliefs, a lot of this stuff is taken out of context, is either a misinterpretation of the scriptures, and we're going to get into that and pinpoint what those inaccuracies are. One of the other things that we tend to notice a lot of times within an Amish community is their extreme avoidance, it seems, of technology, of any kind of in innovation or convenience that, that we have today. There's five things in particular I want to look at and look at why they do these things the way they do. They do it, either they'll pinpoint to a specific scripture in the Bible or look at a biblical principle in general as to why they do this. So bear with me for a, a few minutes as we go through these and then I, wanna, I want to hit a very specific point at the end of these. One of the first things we may notice is they don't drive automobiles. A lot of them were riding a horse and buggy. That's not done because they just don't like cars. The purpose of that is they believe that if an individual has ready availability to transportation to go long distances at a moment's notice, it's going to pull them away from their family. It's going to pull them away from the church. That they're not going to spend as much time with the church family, with their family at home, because they're going to be gone from home way too much. They want it to be difficult for them to travel long distances. They want, the, they want their community to stay close-knit and stay together. Now, that's not to say that they don't ever travel in automobiles. They will hire drivers at times. They will ride trains or buses, even fly on airplanes. But they want it to be a chore to go through those steps to make that happen. They don't want it to happen on a moment's notice. Farm equipment. If you've ever been through an Amish or a Mennonite community even, you'll notice a lot of their farm work is done very much by hand. It's all manual labor. They don't use, and a lot of them don't even use tractors at all. They use horse and wagon a lot of times. The reason for that is they believe that if an individual can take, and we'll use a farm for example, that if they can take a task on their farm and they can narrow it down to a one-man job, you've lost that unity and connection within your family and even with your neighbors. They want you to have to rely on each other. They want you to have to rely on your neighbor to come and help you. Take, for instance, cutting and rolling hay. Today, what we do, one man can cut his hay, can tether it, can rake it, can roll it, can haul it, put it in a barn, do every bit of it by himself. Doesn't need help because of the technology, the equipment that we have. They believe that in doing that, they've, they've lost their camaraderie. They've lost the unity and the friendship that, that they have with their neighbors and the rest of their family electricity within their homes. That's something that tends to stick out a lot of, in people's minds. Why don't they have electricity in their homes? It goes back to the exact same concept as they're, they're not wanting innovations on their farm. They want the family to have to rely on each other while they're at home. They don't want somebody to go and cook a meal and just stick it in the microwave and you're done in four or five minutes. 
They want the family to have to work together to cook meals. They don't want televisions and radios brought within their homes because it's going to introduce temptations or evils into their home that's going to start causing difficulties within the church. Now, granted, there, there may be exceptions if somebody has a health problem. Let's say they need an oxygen machine in their house. There are exceptions that are given for stuff like that because that doesn't go against the, the foundation of why they don't have it. It's not hurting the, the unity of their home. Also, some of their businesses may have it, depending on what their business is, such as if they have to have a credit card machine or something, they may allow that. The next one I thought was actually a very interesting one. This is something, at least in my mind, it really kind of caught my attention, is why don't they have telephones? It's not that they don't want to completely cut off all communication with the outside world. When telephones actually started becoming accepted in society in general, it was accepted within Amish communities. They allowed it in their homes. But they started noticing a problem within their church. Gossip became very prevalent within their church, within their communities. It became a huge problem, and they basically pinpointed it down to the introduction of the telephone within your home. Because of that, they more or less have outlawed phones in their home. Now, phones do exist within Amish communities. They're basically held in some kind of a phone shack that's in a central location that two or three families may share it but it is not allowed within the home. You have to leave and actually make it a chore to go to the phone to be able to use it. Education. They stopped their education at eighth grade. This is something that actually had to go before the Supreme Court of the United States because of truancy laws. They did not want their children receiving an education past eighth grade. Well, the reason for that is they felt that any kind of formal education beyond what was truly required to live and survive actually introduced pride and arrogance into their children. That they became very prideful in the knowledge that they have and they would boast about it. They felt the knowledge they needed to live within their home and their family and the knowledge they needed to understand the scriptures within the church, you had that by the time you were in eighth grade. And so they don't go any further than that. Because of that, they have a lot of times their own schoolhouses. They teach what they want to teach. They don't accept the worldly doctrines that are taught within a lot of the schools, the public schools today. So now we've got to ask the question, these five things that we've looked at, what's wrong, with these, what's wrong with these stances they've taken? What's wrong with not having electricity in your house? What's wrong with not having a phone in your house? Or wanting to drive a horse and buggy instead of a car? Those are actually very honorable things. The reasons why they do it are, are rooted in Scripture, in principles that come from the Bible. But there's one very big problem with that. These stances that they have taken are dictated by their church. You can actually be shunned from an Amish church by breaking one of these rules. If you allow telephones into your home, if you get caught with a, a radio or something in your house, your family can be disfellowshipped more or less. You can be shunned from the church. And so what we have to ask ourselves, where is the line for the authority within the church? And at this point, I want to look at the Lord's church. Where does that line of authority stop? Can the church dictate anything that it wants to dictate? Can it come up with any rule that it wants and hold the members of that congregation accountable to those rules? Or is there a place where that line stops and the church now no longer has a say-so in what happens in a certain situation? You know, there's a lot more stances. We talked about five different things within the Amish church. I specifically pinpointed those five because each of those five things are purely secular in nature. They're purely social things that happen within an Amish community. That is not something that is talked about within the scripture. 
whether or not you can have electricity, whether or not you can drive an automobile or you can have a tractor on your farm. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about that stuff. Within the world today, it seems that there tends to be more of a focus on what is church teaching instead of what is Bible teaching. A lot of people want to think that because Jesus is the head of the church, that he therefore has given authority to the church. So anything that the church says, that is something we have to live by as, as members of that congregation. But the church doesn't have the authority to make up those things. Any authority the Bible, or that the church has has to come from the Bible. And so when we ask at what line do we have to stop in terms of where the authority of the church stops at, we have to look at the scripture for that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. This is the passage that Brother Glenn read for us just a few moments ago. He read an excerpt from it. And he did a very good job explaining what the background was around that. Well, let's go ahead and read the verses that, that goes through that background. What was going on right then? Matthew chapter 15, and let's start in verse 1. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Everything about what we just talked about, these different stances that the Amish are taking within their communities, is all summed up within this passage from Matthew chapter 15. The example that, as Brother Glenn mentioned, the scribes and Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, and he came back and said, wait, that's not a doctrine in the Bible. That is something that is your tradition that you are teaching that came from man, and because of that, you are making the commandments of God of no effect. You are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. One thing we have to be careful of within the Lord's church, there's a lot of traditions when you go from congregation to congregation. Traditions we may have here, we partake of the Lord's Supper after we have the sermon. Some congregations do it before. Traditionally, we have chairs sitting up here on the stage for the men that are going to take part in the worship. They sit in these chairs. They don't have to do that. Not all congregations do that. We have to be careful that anything that we're doing, if we're going to hold somebody to that, if we're going to bind them to that, we better be able to go back to the Bible and show book, chapter, and verse for exactly what we are saying. If we don't do that, we are overstepping the bounds of what Jesus gave the church in terms of authority. And in doing so, we are just as wrong as everybody else within the world. That is taking us down a path that is getting us away from what the Lord intended the church to be and is leading to where some of these other groups got to. You know, a lot of these stances, as we said, that the Amish have taken, they're very admirable. And if it were for me personally, I think I would probably enjoy living in an Amish community in terms of the close-knit family. The, everything they do is very church-oriented or in, in what they believe that the church should be teaching. 
if a local community wants to get together, they want to make decisions in terms of how they are going to control their social life, of the things that they're going to do from a secular nature, even if they want to dictate that people within, let's say, a subdivision, you have to do certain things around your home. That's fine. In fact, that's absolutely no different than what a homeowners association does. If you live in a subdivision and you have a homeowners association, they may dictate what you're allowed to do on your property, what kind of fences you can build around your home. The reason they do that is because they want to see conformity within your subdivision. They want there to be unity of some point. That's exactly what the Amish have done. They've taken it to the far extreme, though, even to the point that they dictate the color of clothes you're allowed to wear, the furniture that you're allowed to have within your home. That's great, but the problem is that the church dictates all of this. The church controls what these rules are. There is no authority in the Bible for that to happen. Well, one of the next things that we may, we may ask then is, let's say an Amish family, they move from one community to another. As I said, their, their communities, their districts are autonomous. Since there's no central governing body, the rules may be different from one community to the other. How is someone to know if they move into a new community what, what the, the rules of that community are? Well, this was something that was noticed very early when there was a split within the Mennonite church. The early Amish leaders sat down and they decided in order for us to have unity among our autonomous districts, our autonomous congregations, we've got to set out basically a set of ground rules or beliefs that we, that we feel should be followed by everyone. And so they met together. They sat down and actually put pen to paper, wrote these things down. They put a collection together, what they referred to as the Ordnung. Now, Ordnung is a German word that means order. And so they have put a book together that each different community is supposed to have, at least today within your very traditional, very conservative Amish communities, this ordnung that they are to follow. There's one problem with that. They just created a creed book. Whether they think they did or not, they just created a creed book. They've put something into place in addition to the Bible. Now, what is in this ordnung are these things that we're talking about from a social nature. It dictates the type of clothing that they're allowed to wear. It dictates their interaction with people outside of the Amish church, which is where you get a lot of your social avoidance from. Even to the point that when somebody gets baptized into the Amish church, not only do they have to confess that they will follow the Bible, that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they also have to confess or state that they will follow the ordnung. They have introduced an additional book that the members of their church have to follow. Now, I understand that the Amish leaders, they were wanting to try to find a way to create unity among autonomous congregations. And there's one reason I've tried to mention that word autonomous several times. If you've, if you've not noticed yet, there's several things, at least from the foundational standpoint of what the Amish believe, that's very similar to the Lord's church. The Lord's Church has autonomous congregations, just like the Amish Church. The Amish have tried to take everything back to a very conservative standpoint, trying to look at what the Bible says and take it literally to get rid of all the frills and stuff that the Catholic Church had introduced and try to go by what they believe the Bible says. That's what the Lord's Church is to do. We are to live by what the Bible says, nothing more, nothing less. And so... You can understand there may be a problem with creating unity among congregations that don't answer to each other or answer to any kind of higher power other than Jesus. But if they were wanting to create unity within their autonomous congregations, they missed exactly what was underneath their noses. You want unity, you follow this. 
The Bible gives us everything we will ever need to have unity within the Lord's church. If we want to be able to have unity with a congregation across town here in Cookville, or maybe even across the country, around the world, if you walk into that congregation, yeah, you're going to see slight differences, such as maybe the order of the worship in terms of how many songs they sing or when they do the Lord's Supper. But the fact is, the Lord's Supper will be there. There will be songs sung. There will be prayers. You are going to have elders. You are going to have deacons. That unity is created because you follow the Bible and nothing else. The Bible gives us everything that we need to know as Christians in order to stay unified. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I know this is a passage that everybody has heard many times. But I want everybody to listen to the words of this. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want unity within the Lord's church, the Holy Spirit has given it to us. If you follow the Scriptures, if you follow the commands of God that are contained within this book, there will be unity. There's no way to get away from it. When you start losing your unity, it's because people started veering away from the Bible. People started veering away from what the Lord has taught or the Lord has commanded. So if we follow this, we're going to have Christian fellowship with people outside of our particular congregation. That unity will exist. We don't need a creed book such as the Ordnung in order to tell us what we need to do to stay unified. As I said, there, there's... There's a lot of sermons it would take to go through every detail of the Amish church and to understand what they believe. A lot of this morning was looking at some history and some basic beliefs. Now, we did get into a couple things of comparing that to the Bible, but tonight I want to get into a lot more of that, of looking at the Scriptures, comparing exactly what they believe to passages in the Bible, see what's wrong with it, see maybe what they're right about. But this morning we did get a chance to look a little bit at their history. And we're going to get into some more this evening in terms of where that history comes into play and what they believe. We've looked at the fact that they've created a creed book within their, within their congregations, what they call the ordnung that sets in place these social issues that we notice when we think of the Amish. You know, but there is one thing that the Amish did get right, that they're very right on. If you are not a baptized member of the church, you will not go to heaven. Period. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. There is no question. If you do not come into the contact of the blood of Jesus through baptism, you have zero hope of going to heaven. That is a teaching that they have. They are very right according to the Bible. You know, the Bible is very clear in what we have to do to become a child of God. We don't need a creed book to tell us this. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing. And we've gone to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. We have to believe what the Bible tells us. We have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Luke 13, 3, it says, unless we repent, we shall all likewise perish. Repentance is not just saying, hey, I've sinned. There's another step to that. We have to stop the sins that are in our life, turn from it, get on track with what the Bible is telling us that we should be doing as a Christian. Romans 10.10, 10, it says, With your mouth, confession is made unto salvation. 
If we're not willing to tell the world that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we confess that before men, what makes us think that God is going to confess before everybody else that we're a child of His? We have to be willing to tell people that we want to be a child of God, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 16, verse 16, it says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. You have to come into contact with that blood of Jesus through immersion and baptism. Then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, we are to fight the good fight. We are to finish running the race. You have to continue on in your Christian life after baptism. It doesn't stop right there. And that's actually another thing that the Amish did get correct. They believe that just becoming a member of the church does not mean you get an automatic ticket to heaven. They believe you can fall away, which is exactly what the Bible tells us. If we're running that race as talked about in 2 Timothy and we decide that we want to sit on the sidelines for a few minutes and take a break because we're tired, you just got out of the race. That is not what the Bible teaches. It says you are to finish the race. You are to stay in it through the long haul. Now, it's not always going to be easy. And the Bible tells us, God tells us, He doesn't expect us to do this by ourselves. It tells us in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you have issues in your life, the Lord set a structure in place that He intends us to help, help each other bear our burdens, that we're to go to each other if we need help. So if you've not become a child of God's, if you've not come into contact with that blood of Christ, the Bible commands you to do so or you will not go to heaven. I can't say it any more strongly. You will not go to heaven. But if you've been in that race and you've decided to take a break, you have to get back in that race. If you have fallen away from the church, let us help you. Let us hold you accountable. Let us be a partner with you to help you to follow the scriptures the way they should be followed. So if you need to become a child of God, if you need to make things right in your life, we ask that you come forward as together we stand and we sing.